Hey everybody, uh, this is Ben Kitchings of the History Voyager. I'm here with Jeff Schneider, and we're going to talk about his novel uh, to do with the Vietnam War. Um, and we might also get into some Vietnam history, etc. So, Mr. Schneider, why don't you uh, start us off? Okay. Um, well, first of all, my name is Jeff Schneider. Uh, I've been writing for the past 15 years, but uh, I was a professor of medicine at uh, University of Pennsylvania, Cornell, Wright State University, and Eastern Virginia Medical School. And uh, uh, I am a physician, but uh, I grew up in the 70s in college. From 1971 to 75, I went to Columbia University, and these were unusual times. It was the Vietnam War era, uh, President Nixon was elected on a platform of winding down the war. And while I was at my first year at Columbia in 71, 72, he escalated the war um, doing a number of things, three of which I can mention. Number one, he took away all student deferments for students who otherwise would have not been subject to the draft. So he took away their deferments from the draft so that students became, for the first time in the Vietnam War and perhaps forever, uh, ever, uh, student deferments were eliminated. Uh, many were in favor of this because <clears throat> it sort of leveled the socioeconomic playing field in terms of who was drafted. But um, the reality was that the people who were then drafted who had been students and highly educated people uh, began to undermine the war in Vietnam and stateside. And uh, that was the issue that I wrote about in my book, The Serpent Papers. And the book is a novel. It is a fiction, but is based on historical events. So the draft and the deferment of the draft was one of the issues that Nixon uh, became embroiled with. Another one was that he escalated the number of troops being sent to Southeast Asia to fight the war. And the number of incursions became more and more aggressive against the Viet Cong and against the Viet Cong and against North Vietnamese troops in the field. So uh, activity was escalated. And thirdly, the actual geographic theater of the war was widened by Richard Nixon. He uh, he sent troops into Laos and Cambodia, uh, often denying it, but. Uh, the facts spoke for themselves and the press got a hold of it as well. So for those reasons, students on campuses uh, across the nation and prototypically Columbia University where riots ensued on campus when the administration called the police in to combat the students. Um, riots occurred on these campuses resulting in casualties and in, in greater and greater press coverage. So it was an interesting time um, there was a lot of conflict. There was a lot of polarity in viewpoints. Um, and there were those against the war, protesting against the war. There were those going to the war, uh, saying you should fight for your country. Um, and I think that what we ended up with was a war that was fought that shouldn't have been fought. And unfortunately, a bad war, not like World War II, which was what you might call a righteous war. But it was a bad war. On the other hand, the people who went to fight it I felt were still heroes and still patriots fighting for their country. But unfortunately, when they came home from the war as veterans, having been injured, wounded, having their friends killed in front of them and all the horrors of war uh, uh, occurring to them, 
they were spat upon by protesters and vilified by those who, many of whom protested, which I, which I was horrified about. Mm. So my take on writing this novel was to show an interesting time in this nation's history, probably the most defining event in the baby boomers generation, that is the Vietnam War. And uh, also to show that there was a great rift between the two ends of the spectrum of this, of those involved in the war, those fight, uh, fighting the war, and those protesting against it. But I felt that in the novel, I could breach. I could. I could. Excuse me. I could bring together the people on both ends of the spectrum and call in a way of a rapprochement to show both sides of the issue, so that these two ends wouldn't be wouldn't have animosity one to the other, wouldn't have enmity between them. So my generation needs to heal over the Vietnam War. It never did. Um, and I think my aim in this novel was to bring about a rapprochement and a healing of my generation over the war, uh, which should have happened decades ago, um, and should acknowledge both the patriotism of those fighting for our country, and at the same time to realize that the war itself was not a good cause. Uh, and that I guess in a large measure was the aim of the book. That's not what the book was, you know, the story of the book is a story of a, a single protagonist. Well, I can go into that in a minute. Oh, oh, sure. Yeah. Go whenever you want. Okay. Well, the book itself is about, uh, the protagonist's name is JB, Joseph Bell likes to be called JB who grows up in a military family uh, in Norfolk, Virginia. Now, for those of you who don't know, Norfolk is where I live, but it's also the largest naval base in the world. Um, <clears throat> and it houses the U.S. Navy on the East Coast, San Diego being the West Coast version. But Norfolk is is the biggest. Uh, so my main character, J.B., comes from Norfolk, and his father's a rear admiral um, and expects J.B. to fight for his country and be a patriot and so forth, at least to go to Annapolis and become a naval officer uh, if not go into the war right away. In fact, he prefers that. Uh, JB, for multiple reasons, has a rebellious personality and undergoes some very severe traumas in his childhood, uh, leading up to things that he cannot forgive himself for. He commits violent acts, uh, and he, although justified in a fashion, he cannot condone himself for the violence that he foments, that he causes, that he, he undertakes. Um, so he ends up going to Columbia instead of to, um, instead of to Annapolis or to Notre Dame, uh, et cetera, university of Virginia. And he goes to Columbia because he sees that at Columbia, there are enough people on both sides of the coin that he would be able to, uh, synthesize a worldview on the Vietnam war and on violence and on war in general. So he goes to Columbia university, uh, and, his his uh, his resolve, uh, one way or the other, is tested. And while there, he has a girlfriend who's very anti-war, and he begins to see both sides of the story. His best friend goes to Vietnam and fights as a soldier. And uh, in the end of the book, he himself has a rapprochement within himself for the two sides of the Vietnam War, for those who fought the war and for those who protested, those who fought the war being typified in his mind or uh, as, as his best friend who was fighting there and those against the war protesting his girlfriend. And he makes a decision about his own approach to the war uh, 
while at Columbia, um, when at a protest in front of Columbia's administration building on campus, uh, and as the police, the tactical New York tactical police force in full battle regalia with plastic shields, battle helmets, clubs, um, attack mm-hmm. the students and with a riot ensuing. So small, yes. Yeah, so um, with hundreds of people involved. So he makes a decision at that moment. He is there. I was there. So I can tell the about the event with authentic, authenticity because I was a witness and actually uh, a participant. And mm-hmm. and after that, uh, his his ability to subsume both sides of the conflict results in the in the um, in the rapprochement that I was trying to achieve. You you keep saying okay. There's a word you say that I don't think I know what it means. Uh, that's it. Uh, what does that mean? It's, it's a, I guess the derivation is French, but it is an English word now and has probably been for a very long time. Rapprochement is a, is a, um, a peacemaking, a coming together. And if not peace, at least a coexistence of two sides who rec- that recognize each other, okay. uh, so that, uh, there can be peace thereafter. A mutual respect, if you will, for two sides of an argument. It's right. more in the line of a uh, platonic dialectic than it is a polemic, uh, which is okay. to say it's more in line with a, an agreement and an agreeable interaction than it is in line with an aggressive action uh, between two sides in enmity. So that's where we should be going, and that's where the book does go. Okay. Let me ask you a question. Um if you don't mind. Of course. Um, how old a man are you, sir? I'm 68. Okay, okay. The reason I'm asking you that is I'm trying to... The Vietnam War uh, started, I guess, technically sort of during Truman, but certainly during Eisenhower. But it sort of was this thing we sort of slid into. Yeah, so, the South, Southeast Asia has a long history in that war because mm-hmm. the French occupied Southeast Asia. It was French Indochina, and they were imperialistic and were exploiting it for the resources they had, tin mines and other things mm-hmm. like that, which the Americans then enjoyed once they moved in, the French left. Um, and yes, there were early advisors sent there. Truman, during Truman's time, the French were in Indochina. Indochina, and maybe I should say a little after Truman's time. Um, but um, the Americans started sending advisors there, probably first under Kennedy, which would be in the 1960 to 1962 range. There possibly may have been some under Eisenhower, but there wasn't much of a force there. The army itself really didn't get involved until um, the end of Kennedy and early LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he came out and promised in the August before elections that he would never bomb North Vietnam, that he would never be aggressive in Southeast Asia. And he was running against Barry Goldwater, who was a Republican from Arizona, who said that he would probably use nuclear weapons against North Vietnam if he had to, but certainly he would attack it. Um, And what happened was LBJ knew in advance that he had no intention of not bombing Vietnam. In fact, he it came out. Okay, wait, wait yeah. you mean okay? Lyndon Baines Johnson yes. had no intention of not bombing Vietnam. 
Correct. Okay. I'm just cleaning that up for, for myself and for people. that For clarification, of course. Yeah, the so, <laughs> so he promised, he promised while during the elections, Lyndon Bain Johnson was president. He, of course, he became president halfway through Kennedy's tenure because Kennedy, Kennedy was assassinated. Johnson was sworn in. Johnson got involved in Vietnam. He swore that he wouldn't escalate the war and he wouldn't bomb North Vietnam. And in August before the elections, and I forget the year, maybe it was 64, uh, 1964, he promised the American people that he wouldn't bomb North Vietnam. He wouldn't escalate the war. But papers showed and testimony came out that, in fact, as he was saying that, he was actually at that very moment planning to escalate the war and planning the bombing of North Vietnam as soon as the elections were over, which is what he did. Uh, mm -hmm. So he basically lied to the American people. And that was the reason why he wasn't able to seek a, another term. Uh, he stepped down from the presidency after one and a half terms because he had lied and it came out and it was an embarrassment to him and it was wrong. And he was a Democrat and Nixon then later came in and, uh, he lied to the American people as well. So really the lies came out of both parties. Uh, it was a difficult war. It was a difficult situation. And, uh, yeah. and that's what happened. I mean, I've, I've studied the <laughs> Vietnam war, um, over years and it's really sort of, it's, I don't know the word, but it, it's really kind of bizarre is a word. To, to see the, the powers that be and this slow realization that the war was not technically winnable, you know, in the way they would have liked, but also like they felt like they couldn't leave. And so they escalated it needlessly. Well, they thought they could win. See, underlying, there was a very influential, and I think he was a secretary of state under Eisenhower, but uh, it was certainly before. LBJ, a man named John Foster Dulles, who was very influential in the thinking of JFK and Nixon, who ran against each other in 1960 for president, mm -hmm. two, two newbies, neither of whom were an incumbent. And they both subscribed to the idea that John Foster Dulles uh, stated, and that was that that was the domino theory, let me just say, that had a name. And that is if one country in Southeast Asia were to fall, all the others would fall to communism one by one like dominoes. <clears throat> mm -hmm. And the, this was the height of the Cold War between you know, the United States and Russia, <clears throat> Soviet Union, I should say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the matter of who would control Southeast Asia was of tremendous importance to politicians, and it was a big political issue. Um, people were afraid. Both sides had nuclear warheads. Both sides could wipe out each other, the other side. So the idea that um, the sphere of influence of the USSR would grow in Southeast Asia and that North Vietnam was a communist country receiving aid from the Soviet Union scared the pants off the American public, the press, and the politicians. They, it was a serious matter. So they, it wasn't that Dulles, John Foster Dulles was right, but that the domino theory was a scary thought. So basically everyone 
acknowledge, you know, that, you know, just like in Berlin, we had a standoff at the Elbe River between East and West Germany. We had a standoff. We must create. Uh, and, and of course, in Korea, there was a standoff at um, uh, what, what parallel is that? The 17th? I can't remember. Um, so there's a North and South Korea. And there were men, army men stationed on both sides, taking pot shots at each other once in a while after the war had finished. So the world was being carved up this way as a result of the Cold War, and Southeast Asia was thought to be no different. But the truth of the matter is that Ho Chi Minh in North Vietnam had a different mindset, and that there was an argument that the Vietnamese people were allowed to have self-determination, and if the two Vietnams, North and South, wished to be together, um, they should be allowed to unite. You know, it's an agrarian nation. They should be allowed to be what they want to be. Um, so there were all these issues swirling around, um, and it was a difficult, um, a difficult issue. And then, of course, TV came in, and the Vietnam really Vietnam War was really the first televised war that came into everybody's living room, live, not cut. I mean, they would show live sh people shooting at each other, GIs being killed, blood in color. Don't forget the color television uh, did not come out until later. Um, and I mean, the first kid I knew had a color television. It must have been in nineteen in the early sixties. So basically the Vietnam War grew up with color television and people saw blood. They saw kids, 18-year-olds, drafted into the military, being shot and killed, bloodied bodies, lying on tarmacs, waiting to be shipped home or shipped wherever they bury them, being zipped up in black bags. And uh, it was a very difficult time for the American public. And the issues were big. I mean, the, the stakes were high because of the Cold War. war. So that was sort of the underpinnings of the war and what made it such a hot problem. Sorry to talk you, so much. Please, I'll, let me. No, 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 no. You're the you're the guest. Um, yeah, and from everything I've read, uh, getting into the I guess the warm bath analogy, Vietnam was just sort of this. The Vietnam War, from the American perspective, was this sort of a thing you just sort of slipped in, right? Um, the news coverage was that way too. Like the, you know, you were seeing war for the first time on television. And I think I read somewhere, I, I uh, interviewed a uh, correspondent, a Vietnam correspondent uh, years ago. And he said they, he said they would essentially, I forget exactly what he said, but he, the rules of the game for being over there were, were not what they became later <clears throat> for like Iraq or, or whatever. <clears throat> and people could just sort of wander around the press. The press could just sort of wander around to an extent, what he said. And so he would basically cover the war. And, um, but yeah, like, and I, I remember there was a guy that I used to see twice a week. Um, and he would talk about how um, it just sort of like this whole thing was new. This whole idea that you could watch a a war over dinner, <laughs> whatever, and it became appointment television. Um, That's pretty much correct. Yeah. 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 So, so the problem was that you know the press had been in the field in World War II, 
and mm. possibly in Korea. I don't know. But I, I know that this week I was watching something on Netflix. I think it was Netflix, a prime Amazon video about uh, Robert Sherrod was in um, the South Pacific fighting the Japanese uh, when, when the U.S. was fighting the Japanese on these rocky islands like uh, Iwo Jima and Okinawa. And he was there with the GIs and, you know, they're shooting all around him and he was there, but they weren't live film cuts. They had, they made films and then they decided later that for the most part, they weren't going to show the American public, the bloodiest pieces of these films. Um, so Vietnam, as you say, and as I mentioned, yes, there was live coverage from the field and reporters were ki being killed. You know, they'd go out into the jungle with patrols in Vietnam uh, just like Sherrod did in Southeast, in, in when we were fighting the Japanese, Southeast Pacific, right. South Pacific. And, and they would be, some of them were shot and killed along with the soldiers. So it was a, yeah. it was a dicey thing. And yes, we, everyone would watch at dinner at the six o'clock news and so forth. So it was, uh, it was yeah. very much a problem. Yeah. I think he even talked about how it would come in like unedited. Like it was like live. Like you're sitting there with a correspondent and the correspondent is talking to somebody who's firing. Yes, it, it, it was that it was that crazy. You know, it was that crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And you you mentioned earlier about a um a protest in Colombia or at Colombia. <laughs> and uh I I that protest has been talked about in in literature and film and fiction, and I think I have talked to a few people. Um, over the years that were there with you on one side or the other. Well, there uh, has to be some clarification because there is some confusion about the protests at Columbia. Okay. Well, please clarify. In, in 1968, there was a big protest over a gymnasium um, at Columbia. And, and what it was was the gymnasium was on the edge of the cliff of, the Mornings of Morningside Park in New York. So Columbia was is situated in a place called Morningside Heights. And there was an earthquake, I don't know, a million years ago, which caused the heights, the Morningside Heights on Manhattan to raise up out of the ground and the section next to it subside downwards. And there's a big cliff there where the fault line was, where the earthquake occurred. And of course, Columbia is sitting on top of the Morningside Heights, and Harlem was was below, uh, uh, on the the lower end, on the lower side of the heights. And in between, there was a small. There's of course there was this escarpment, which was very steep, and there was a park on the escarpment, with a little bit of the park in Harlem, like a, just a little bit there. So basically, the park was on the on the the side of this uh, rock face, um, hill like area. And um, it was a very violent area. Harlem was not in that particular area was not um, uh, was not safe in those days. Um, yeah. And there was an issue over Columbia wanted to build a gym and allow the community of Harlem to use the gym. And there was a big political fight about Columbia building a gym on Morningside Heights in this manner. Um, and there were issues of what they called racism and so forth. Um, okay. But there, it was a big protest and it got the news and it was 1968. Um, and it was really less about the Vietnam War. In fact, 
I don't think that was the main thrust at all. Uh, and I've been in, I've actually uh, emailed back and forth with Mark Rudd, who was the president of the SDS chapter at Columbia. Um, and he, you know, he spearheaded those protests and there was a book written about it and a very bad movie, um, by a guy named James Simon James Cunin or James Simon, Simon Cunin called the strawberry statement. The movie was terrible. I read the book. The book was pretty good. It wasn't, didn't knock my socks off, but it was a pretty good non-fictional re- account of what happened. Mm-hmm. But the ones that I'm writing about have never been written about. Uh, there was press on it, but it's very hard to find the press. Uh, the Columbia daily spectator um, does have archives of these events. And I have got the permission from them to use uh, photographs from their um, archives. And I put them on my website, which is jschnaderauthor.com. So people could see what the protests from 1972 looked like. And they were just as widespread and just as uh, huge as they were in 68, maybe even bigger because the whole university was shut down. There were no classes, no exams. Students took over a number of buildings. Um, you know, they took over Kent Hall and they took over Hamilton Hall and they took over Lewiston Hall and they occupied the physics building, Pupine Hall for a while. So it was a huge undertaking by the students. Um, and there was a march down Broadway, which reached 50,000 people at one point, all against the war and all during the time period that's in my book in the spring, mostly April and May of 1972 against the war and against Nixon. A lot of the documentation for this conflagration, for these protests, for the riots on campus, were hushed up by Columbia, and they are in the Columbia archives, and they are not open to the public. As an alumnus, I'm allowed to see them, but I have to apply to see them, and I have to apply to get access to them, and that that, uh, that I should see them is not guaranteed. So they are locked away. They do exist, but there was much less press in 1972 because a lot of because of Columbia's influence, and in, I imagine in in dampening the media coverage. Um, but in any case, there is there ha- there was media coverage, but I was an eyewitness to a lot of the events, and so I don't really need media coverage. My memory of those events yeah. is uh, is very sharp, um, and I thought of a lot about them over the years. And they are uh, really uh, part of the linchpin of my novel, The Serpent Papers, uh, okay. which is going to be released. Um, I probably should say this up front by the permanent press. And the release date is January 31st, 2022. And again, um, one can order the book ahead of time from through my website or through the permanent press website. But yes, so those protests are different than the ones you may have heard of. I don't know. But they were just as big. Police were called on campus. There was a riot. I saw it. I was there. The, the stuff in Columbia that I would have heard about it would have been through television or through the media or through the movies. Or I've, I've interviewed people for various things over the years, and sometimes it comes up, you know. But uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I interviewed a. I interviewed a guy who was in Vietnam who actually protested against the war there in Colombia. Do you know his name? Maybe I know. Uh, <laughs> it's been a while, maybe. I, I don't want to say his name on the air. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> but uh, 
Yeah. Um, well, I mean, you know, there were a lot of people at Columbia. First of all, Columbia University, a big university. I think there's 15, 16,000 people there at the university as students. At that time, yeah. As, as students. So, yeah. you know, there were a large number of them protesting. I mean, so much so, of course, the whole university was eventually shut down, mm. which was sort of a shame. But um, I guess the students made their point. And, you know, all of this was on a background of what happened in 1970, 71, 70, I think it was. Kent State University, of course, um, the incident there, uh, mm -hmm. when the students were protesting, the National Guard was brought in and surrounded the students. The irony being that the students were the same age as those who were in the National Guard. And uh, in a rather uncontrolled moment, the National Guard opened fire and four students were killed and a number were injured. Um, and Neil Young, of course, of course we still National Young, but Neil Young uh, wrote a song about it, um, about that incident, uh, Four Dead in Ohio, because uh, Kent State, of course, is in Ohio. So there, w there was a lot of heated stuff going on at the time, and uh, the students protesting sort of was at the culmination of uh, at Columbia was the sort of the culmination of an anti-war movement. Um, and then that summer, of course, the Democrats had a convention in Miami, I think it was. And uh, no, excuse me, the Republicans had a convention in, in Miami. And um, a lot of people, students, especially who protested against the war, went down to protest in the streets and at the okay. venue where the Republicans held their presidential national uh, uh, convention. And it was at that time that a famous uh, event occurred while uh, the Republicans, and I, I think even Richard Nixon was on the, the podium or the stage, uh, was that a veteran in a wheelchair, a Vietnam veteran in a wheelchair, rolled down the aisle and shouted at the, uh, rep at the Republican candidates, um, stop the war. And uh, it made national news uh, uh, at the time. Yeah. Um, now, your family, um, how, what were their political thoughts? That sort of thing. Well, um, my father was very immersed in his career and didn't say much to me, but he took me down to the draft board when I got my draft card before I went to mm. Columbia, before I went to school. Um, my mother at the time told me, if you're drafted, you will fight. And if you die for your country, you die for your country. Um, I don't think her views would be the same today. And I would imagine they possibly changed earlier on. But at the time, mm. she basically, um, she was ready to sacrifice her son on the altar of the Cold War and, uh, the domino theory. Um, so, uh, and I think she voted for Goldwater. And mm. um, I don't know who my father vote, voted for. I imagine mm. he voted for um, LBJ. And I didn't vote in that election. I was too young. Um, so I didn't vote that time around. But uh, my family were not soldiers. They were not military um, hmm. the book is about an Irish Catholic boy. I grew up in an Irish Catholic neighborhood. 
so the fears of Catholic school and the Irish nuns at the Catholic school are explored. Some of the abuses are explored. And my mm. main character's upbringing is explored from the point of view of violence and the kind of violence boys are often subjected to in their childhood, unjust violence. Um, and then, then mm. my main character had to deal with his own background, which had had violence in it, and deal with the idea of war, uh, eventually repudiating it. So mm. uh, these were the issues that boys had in those days. Uh, and the issues are still around. Whether they're as prevalent or not, we can debate. But uh, the issues of violence in the upbringing of young men is still very much uh, alive and uh, problematic. So, yeah, I mean, one of the things I have uh, was able to almost chart over the years in talking to people about Vietnam is how the parents of those people um, <coughs> had their views evolve, in some cases, greatly. Uh, towards the war. Um, you know. Well, in my neighborhood, I, I did, I knew a girl who was uh, a year younger than me who had an older brother who volunteered for Vietnam and he was killed. <clears throat> and she was mm. devastated and her family was devastated. Uh, and that's the price people pay in war, you know, war is, um, mm. is evil. It's bad. Sometimes it's necessary. And it's been, I think it's one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, isn't it? Uh, it's war, famine, pestilence, and death, pestilence being disease, mm. war, famine, pestilence, and death are the four things that people, uh, feared in throughout history. Uh, and and uh, they're all they're all still here. I mean, pestilence, COVID is still is here. The plague is not here the way it used to be. Smallpox has been eliminated through vaccination, um, and so that's gone. That's not a threat anymore. These are the greatest killers in all the history of mankind. Are probably tuberculosis, smallpox, and plague in that order. Uh, so I, you know, we still have our uh, different plagues these days. Tuberculosis is around, but it's not killing as many people, not even close to as many as it used to. Mm. But now we have COVID and there'll be other plagues. There'll be new plagues. So, yeah. uh, and war is still there, you know, and it's still an issue, but it's something we, yeah. as, as human beings, it's something that we should be able to have more control over, but it seems that we can't, uh, we can't quite yet. Yeah. Last night, last night, I, I talked to a young man uh, in Bosnia, and he told me the story the day before off air, basically. He told me about how there's a civil war. It's, it's like soon Bosnia's going to have to choose between um, going to war against NATO or, or having a civil war, basically. And the thing that struck me in our second conversation was how calm he seemed, like how, you know, and I don't know, I've talked to uh, a young man who went to Vietnam, um, you know, to live for a while. And he said out in the, out in the countryside in Vietnam, they really don't like Americans at all. Um, like, you know, at all. 
And I was wondering, um, I guess so, you didn't fight in Vietnam, did you? you no, I did not fight. Veteran. My number was high in the lottery, high enough to get not to have to be drafted, and I wasn't going to volunteer because, as I say, I, I felt the war was not just. Right. So, um, so I, I guess my question, how would, how do you think, uh, if you lived somewhere and you knew war was coming, how do you think you would, how, how do you think you'd be day to day? Well, I think if war is, is impending, uh, war is inevitable, or you perceive that war is a great possibility, there were, there will be different circumstances of one's life that one will consider before deciding how to confront that war. <clears throat> One is, uh, where is your family? Um, so if, if, you're, if you're fighting for your family, I don't see that there's much of a choice. You have to fight for your family. If you're by yourself and you feel that chances are very low of staying and surviving, and you happen to be isolated from family or from loved ones, wherever you are, probably the impulse would be to get out, get the heck out of there. And then finally, you want to consider your stake in the country where you live or in the place you live in. Um, you know, is there a chance that you can maybe escape and fight against them another day at a different time, place? Um, is there a chance? Is there no chance at all, and you just have to stand up and fight right then and there? Mm-hmm. There, there are there are um, circumstances that will change your decision, um, and I think that those circumstances make all the difference. Well, let me, um, so you became a doctor in your working life. Um, what kind of medicine do you practice or did you practice? Yeah, I retired last year. Um, my career is another thing. It's got some interesting points. So, um, I, uh, got my fellowship and subspecialty certification from Johns Hopkins in pulmonary and critical care medicine. So pulmonary being lungs, lung medicine. Mm. And I decided to stay in academia and I became a research scientist uh, and had a laboratory and had grants from the NIH, from the Veterans Administration, from the American Lung Association, et cetera. Um, And I worked on pulmonary hypertension and respiratory muscle function in the face of disease which happens to be a big issue when people are on ventilators because their respiratory muscles have to work if you want to get them off the ventilator. And there are Mm -hmm. factors that work against the respiratory muscles when you're on a ventilator and you need to get off. So if your lungs are made of cement because they're all full of pneumonia and other things and they're very stiff, it's going to be very hard for the muscles to breathe in and out with lungs that are extremely stiff or cement-like. So there are issues of respiratory muscles in ventilation and in in people who have uh, severe respiratory disease. Uh, so those are the things I studied. And, uh, you know, I was a professor. I educated, uh, taught a lot of classes. I uh, went nationally to the national chest meetings of the American College of Chest Physicians um, and at times also to the American Thoracic Society. Uh, and I lectured nationally um, at these lectures uh, to audiences of 200 to 1,000 physicians and scientists and I did that maybe 130, 140 times. 
I chaired about 30 or 40 of those sessions, uh, maybe a bit more than that. Um, and, uh, um, so there was a lot of, I had a lot of exposure in the medical world in my field. Mm. Uh, and I became an editor of the peer review journal chest of, which is the, the journal of the American college of chest physicians. Um, I was the president of the Ohio thoracic society. As a result of all this, I was on national public radios channel WMUB on a program called sound health, where I would, uh, field questions from the listening audience about lung health, smoking, Mm -hmm. intensive care unit problems, et cetera. Uh, and I did that. Many, maybe 20, 25 times. So, so let me ask you a question. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What's the biggest? Uh, what's the biggest change you've seen <laughs> in basically in chest health and in thoracic health and things? Well, there have been good things and there have been bad things. Mm. So, for example, one good thing is that smoking, which was extremely prevalent, I think maybe fifty to sixty percent of men smoked when I started working. Now it's down to below twenty percent. So we have the wave of smokers has has sort of gone by the wayside. It's uh, smoking has gone out of fashion. Uh, you know, the movies would have smokers all the time. Humphrey Bogart was always smoking. It was considered glamorous. It's not considered glamorous anymore, and it shouldn't be. It's a scourge. It's a terrible thing, smoking. And I, I appreciate the fact that it's it's also the most difficult addiction to overcome. If you happen to be a smoker, it's absolutely horrifying. So my I've spent a long time trying to get people to quit and helping them quit and giving them support. And I, I believe, I believe that people who do smoke should not be looked down upon, but they should be helped um, to quit as, as long as they're willing to be helped, of course. Uh, so smoking has gone one way, uh, but there've been a number of new respiratory diseases throughout the years. There's Legionella pneumonia, Legionnaire's disease. Uh, there was AIDS and HIV, which led to lots of bizarre pneumonias and respiratory issues. Um, and I was on the ground floor when HIV uh, began infecting people, and it was called AIDS because we didn't even know what caused it, and we didn't know for a year, a couple of years. Mm. Um, and I worked with one of the guys who wrote, who was on Mark Kaplan, who was on uh, one of the two original papers. I think the one with Gallo that came out of the United States, although the paper from France preceded that paper maybe by just a little bit. Uh, mm. So the second paper, and I worked with them, and, and I worked on a ward with 50 HIV patients, and it was an interesting, scary, and... What was that like, the the ward with the HIV patients? What, what was that like? Oh, well, first, I mean, the interesting thing about... The thing about the AIDS virus is... Uh, well, first of all, to even back up, the AIDS virus is an RNA virus, and mm. uh, there's been a lot of research on viruses since AIDS hit humanity. Uh, there had been not enough work on viruses before that, but it's a result of the AIDS epidemic and all the tremendous pyramid of work and research that's been done on RNA viruses because of HIV that has mm. benefited uh, the attack against COVID. The, vi- the vaccine from COVID is sort of a culmination of, of, of much of what had gone on previously in RNA viral technology. And it's one of the most brilliant achievements of all mankind is this, uh, is the current, vi- are the current uh, vaccines against the COVID virus. So um, I digress. 
But so what happened was the HIV virus was a sloppy virus. It was a virus that mutated much more frequently than COVID did. It was mutating constantly. And what we saw <clears throat> that was uh, horrifying and maybe interesting uh, was the fact that patients would come to the hospital. We had a 50-bed ward with only HIV IV patients on it um, at one of the Cornell teaching hospitals. And patients would come in one month. A lot of the patients would have lung cancer. And then the lung cancers would sort of go away. People wouldn't have lung cancers. And then suddenly, they, these were people that didn't necessarily smoke. Then suddenly, a whole raft of patients who had HIV and AIDS came in with lymphoma. And then that would fade away. And then they'd come in with a different kind of cancer or tumor. So you could die, oh, back up a minute. So these people that had the lung cancer, they were dying of lung cancer and then different people. Correct. Yeah. Okay, okay. So there would be like, right. yeah, waves of people with different problems, different waves, different waves of different people coming in with different problems. But the thing was, you see, what was happening was HIV was mutating. And for a while, the mutations caused lung cancers. And then the mutations would drift away and a new mutation would predominate. And then people would be coming in with lymphomas, which is another kind of tumor or neoplasm. So what was happening was the HIV virus was mutating so fast, it was spinning off all these other terrible diseases with it. Mm. COVID, in fact, as far as I'm concerned, it didn't compare to HIV in terms of the dangers that it posed, although it did kill a lot of people, I must say. I guess it did pose a lot of but But we have the ability to really dampen it down with vaccines if we could do that properly. Um, but in HIV, there were many years with AIDS and it's uniformly fatal disease, so uh, it posed a tremendous problem and there were no vaccines and I don't think there still is an effective vaccine for HIV. So it's, it's a problem virus. Well, our treatment, there are better treatments. Uh, all right. Let's, this is fundamentally a history podcast, believe it or not. So let's uh, fix a year <laughs> um, to the, to you in a, in a ward with AIDS patients. We'll talk in the eighties, the early eighties, the late seventies. Uh, probably the early eighties in my case, um, okay. early to mid eighties. Okay. Um, although there is one case in the new England journal of medicine and from 1956 that is purported to be the first, possibly the first HIV case ever recorded, uh, in a sailor who had been to West Africa. Uh, mm-hmm. who came in with a bizarre syndrome and nobody knew what it was. It was one of the very few case studies in that journal that was present, which were presented where the case was unresolved and nobody knew what the cause of it was in retrospect, people mm. thought perhaps it was HIV, but yes, some, it was the mid eighties, early mid eighties. Some historians, uh, think that some of the things that, uh, I think it was Freud. I, I don't remember, but somebody back then, uh, was writing about things that some people think might've been AIDS. So I haven't heard that myself. Yeah. Well, that was new when I was going back to college. That was new stuff that I was reading at the time. So I don't know if that's, you know, I'm, I'm not here to, to say one way or the other. I'm just saying, um, yeah. What do you think that the, when did the public, um, Perception of AIDS start to change. Change? 
Uh, I think as far we'll... as like, yeah, only gay people. It used to be like people thought only gay people could get it, or well, like like that. No, we knew that uh, that homosexual behavior um, could result in the transmission of AIDS. We also knew that intravenous drug abuse could, you know, people share the same needles. They would get get one to the other. They would get AIDS. I had a friend who got AIDS that way, um, and then he many years later he showed up in my office, and I was treating him. Um, I was taking care of him for for a problem he had. Uh, so, <clears throat> I mean, those were the t- and the third way to get it was um, through heterosexual sex and sex workers, and a fourth mm-hmm. way to get it was through hemophilia, where hemophiliacs needed blood in order to survive. And a lot of the blood was contaminated with HIV. It's donor blood. Uh, of course, when the HIV testing, when, when we found out it was HIV and it wasn't just AIDS, some unknown disease, we, uh, we were able to test blood that was donated for HIV. And of course, then, then the hemophiliacs ceased to get AIDS or HIV because we, uh, screened the blood that was obtained for HIV. We only gave them non-HIV blood, of course. So those are the ways in which, but we're digressing, I guess, from the Vietnam War, but those were the ways in which um, HIV was transmitted in those days. And I have something interesting to tell you about that. And that is, uh, I'll say this for free, although I know it's not the thrust of the program to talk about HIV, but um, it was often stated that, who was it, Rudy Giuliani, um, was the mayor of New York and quote unquote cleaned up New York. Yeah. Well, the truth of the matter is in his administration, <clears throat> AIDS hit New York and 50,000 during his administration, 50,000 drug addicts, heroin are you, users. Are you sure you're not died, talking about it? Died you- during the HIV epidemic from using contaminated needles one to the other. So, right. Uh, am I sure I'm not talking about what? You're not talking about Giuliani. You're talking about uh, the guy before him. Because Giuliani was 9-11. Right? Uh, yeah, you may be. That's why I say I wasn't sure it was Giuliani. Yeah. But, no, uh, it was, yeah. but it But there was a mayor. Uh, um, actually, I don't know. I was under the impression it was Giuliani. But anyway, the mayor claimed yeah. to have cleaned up New York. And the truth of the matter was that, in fact, Drug addicts had all been had been decimated, had been killed by the HIV virus, and they were the ones committing the crimes for drugs. So crime improved in New York, unfortunately, at the expense of the loss of life. Fifty thousand drug users dying, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, but he used it and, and claimed credit for it, and it really had nothing to do with whoever was mayor at the time. Yeah, an interesting sidelight. I didn't know that. I absolutely didn't know that. I, I didn't know there was a correlation there between. <laughs> crime and the death of intravenous drug users oh well makes sense yes yeah (laughs) yeah makes sense um well dr schneider um thank you for coming on my show um what let me ask you because you're unique in all my guests um let me ask you um where do you think COVID is going? Do you think it's going to be uh, endemic, or do you think we're going to we're going to beat this? Uh, 
I think eventually, it's not like HIV where it's mutating so fast. It's not even like flu. It's not even mutating, I don't think, that fast. Um, I think that with vaccination, we can get rid of it, um, or at least make its levels so very, very low that there doesn't have to be panic about it. But I think that probably COVID is here to stay in one form or another, at least in the near future. Um, so that's, that's my opinion. That's just one man's opinion. Um, but no, Giuliani was in office from 1994 to 2001. He was, he left in 2001 in December. Uh, so, uh, uh, he may have been there for 9-11, but then he was out shortly afterwards. And he did take the credit for uh, cleaning up New York City. Okay. Just one, I, I, I looked it up online because um, I think your point was well taken and it was important to clarify. No, no, thank you. Thank you. I wasn't trying to. I just, wow. That no, was a good um, point. It was a good point on your yeah. part. and It was worth looking up. No, it was. I mean, I remember the, the memory of Giuliani that I have is bears. Of course, nine eleven related, um, which you know, if you were alive for that and you were uh, aware enough to be aware of the media, pretty much everybody has a nine eleven memory. I would say. Um, yes, that's uh, yeah. it's like the death of President Kennedy. You weren't there, but I was, and everybody who was remembers exactly what they were doing at the moment they heard. Yeah. It was one of those events. It's like Pearl Harbor, those sorts of incredibly um, shaking events yeah. that people remember exactly where they were when they heard about it. Can I just make a final um, notation oh, sure. about my book? Uh, I, I want to. No, go ahead. Again, if they if they haven't heard, my book is called The Serpent Papers. My name is Jeff Schneider. It's going to be published on January thirty first, twenty twenty two, by the Permanent Press. And again, it's a Vietnam War era novel. Um, it it was a runner up. Uh, it was a shortlisted finalist in the Blue Moon novel competition. Um, and you can look at my website at jschnaderauthor.com. And it's spelled S C H N A D E R, jschnaderauthor.com. I tell you what, if you email me your links, I'll uh, put them in the description. Um, but if you okay so tell you what if you let me I'll, I'll use the name of your book as the title of my podcast that would be great that way, so that way when people google the serp the, you know the serpent papers um which let me ask you this obvious question 56 minutes in why is it called the serpent papers <clears throat> There's a bit of a mystery surrounding that that I don't want to reveal, but it is there is a character in the book who is goes by the name the Serpent, and he is okay. a coffee house sage who talks to students in a specific coffee house at uh, the Apocalypse Cafe on the campus of Columbia in the basement of St. Paul's uh, Chapel, which is a building on Columbia's campus, and the basement of which was a cafe when I was there. I don't know if it still is. Uh, and he, the serpent is this character who talks there behind a diaphanous screen. His identity is therefore um, kept hidden. And he talks to his audience about war and about Vietnam and about violence, peace, and um, uh, moral, moral 
judgments of those things. Uh, and the Serpent Papers, named for him, has a twist to it in the book. And I don't want to reveal that to the readers because um, mm. it's, a, it's a nice twist. Well, I'll look forward to, uh, to reading your book when it comes out. It sounds interesting. Um, okay, everybody. Uh, as always, I'm having a great day, and I hope you are. This has been uh, Jeff Snader doctor and author and i'm pretty sure 95 percent of this is going to make the internet all right just hang on with me while i download the uh thing okay sure all righty bye-bye everybody